The last time that we were together uh, was the 22nd of September. Yes. No, no, no. The, the 15th of September. Last week, of course, we were in the midst of our missions conference. And um, after I finished, uh, well, actually, it was the next day, Richard Loom came to me, uh, he just uh, the dear, sweet man that he is. And uh, he, he um, in his... The, the, and he's a gracious man, and, and uh, in his most gracious way, he said, uh, you were really wonderful last night, but, and um, you, you, the, the things prior to the but mean nothing. It's the things after the but that really, that really uh, are what's being said. Um, but you were really wonderful last night, but um, everybody was so confused. You lost everybody. <laughs> no. So um, I um, have repented and uh, I am going to seek to find you. Uh, but just a, a, a word in my defense. Um, the book of Romans did not get the reputation of being the theological workbook of the New Testament for nothing. I mean, it is Paul's great theological treatise. I think I've said this before, but most would suggest that uh, what you find in the book of Galatians is the rough draft, is the first draft. That is, that Paul was sitting in an Ephesian prison and he wrote, um, uh, he he kind of sketched off the great themes of justification by faith in in uh, his epistle to the Galatians. And once he had done that, then he had more time to to, uh, sit down and think through uh, in, a, in a more uh, detailed way, uh, the presentation of his theological system and, and what you have in Romans is that presentation of his theological system. So, um, uh, you must understand that if, if it's difficult, it is difficult. I mean, it's difficult because it's difficult. But it, it, it shouldn't be made more difficult than it already is. And it doesn't take a, a, a seminary education to understand the book of Romans. Uh, beyond its its own difficulty, what other difficulty I created. And so that's what I want to try and address uh, both tonight and in the coming weeks uh, to try and do my my best to be as um, as uh, lucid as one might possibly uh, find himself. Now, So let me just kind of back up, say a couple of things, and we'll try to get to verse 3 tonight. Uh, I I think we can, but uh, let me just kind of back up and and, um, uh, try to as best. I mean, I wrote this little outline, and then I threw it away and wrote it again. Because, again, I'm I'm majoring or striving to be um, very clear. (laughs) Gang. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is one of the, maybe not the most famous, but a famous text in the New Testament. There is therefore now no condemnation to to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a a famous verse. And in that verse, what Paul does is um, introduce really the great theme of the chapter. The theme of the chapter would be no condemnation. 
Now, what you get next, and, and part of our problem is that we're studying this basically a verse at a time. And that's not, that's not real helpful because I'm, I'm sure you, not only do I confuse you tonight, but you, you forget uh, next week, or between now and next week, what I said tonight that confused you in the first place. So, I mean, you just come doubly confused. But what you have in the first four verses are basically two couplets. Paul says basically the same thing in verses 1 and 2 as he says in 3 and 4. 3 and 4 are pretty much a restatement of 1 and 2. They are stated very differently indeed. But basically they are, they are um, stating the same things but stating them in, a, in an expanded, different fashion so that he can add to his argument. So what you have in verses 1 and 2 are going to be repeated for you in verses 3 and 4. But as I said, in different terminology. Now, there is no condemnation. Why? Why is there no condemnation? And I'm suggesting, and I've, I've made myself a little... Um, this is the theme, and then Paul goes on to tell you why there is no condemnation. And the first thing that he mentions is in verse 1, is that we are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now, gang, uh, that little prepositional phrase is pregnant with meaning. Uh, we could, that could launch us into all kinds of discussions. We could talk about union with Christ. We could even say that a larger term that would include these is the term justification by faith or justification or the doctrine of justification. Um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's just one way of saying, a different way of, of communicating this glorious truth that is found embedded in the doctrine of justification by faith. All right? So, as a result of being in Christ, there is no um, legal guilt um, that's one of the, the, the benefits of um, being in Christ. There is no legal guilt. There is no legal claim. That has all been eliminated because I'm in Christ. And thus, I am never to be condemned. Okay? That, that's, that's what verse 1 covers in essence. It gives you a reason why Paul can make the statement that there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation because they're in Christ. Then he comes to verse 2, and he gives you a second reason as to why there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation because the Holy Spirit set us free. 
um, that's what the text says. For the law of the spirit of the uh, um, of the of for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free. Gang, um, I am free from any obligation to fulfill the law's demands on me as a condition for life. That is. I am free from any demand that the law makes upon me so that I might enjoy life. If the law makes any demand for a condition of life, I have been set free from that by the Holy Spirit. Um, And as a result of the Holy Spirit's work, I am now being delivered from not, not legal guilt... But actual guilt or the actual power of sin through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, The internal corruption that is true of all of us is now being addressed. The internal corruption is being addressed through... The presence of the Holy Spirit that has accomplished not only setting me free, but it is also addressing the the power of actual sin in me, because we got a lot of it. There's a lot of drift in all of us. A lot of there's a dark side to us all. There is a there is a defect in us all. And you know, guys, it's just a matter of which defect. I mean, we all got them. We all got lots of them. But not only has, have I been granted a, a, an imputed righteousness in Christ, I am being granted an imparted righteousness by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is addressing the internal corruption that I brought into the kingdom with me. And I brought a bunch I brought a potload, just like you. Now, of course, if this is, if one of the reasons that there is no condemnation is that I'm justified, this verse 2 would address the whole idea of my sanctification. That, that because the Holy Spirit has set me free, He has put me on a path, He has put me on a course where I am in, I am having the internal corruption addressed. I am being set free from the, from the, the, the influences of sin. And that, of course, is just lots of words to address the issue of sanctification. But because that has been done by the Holy Spirit, it is another grounds for me to conclude that there is no condemnation. That's what the apostle is trying to prove. That's what he's trying to communicate. Is that there's no condemnation. Why? Because I'm in Christ. Why? Because I've been set free by the Holy Spirit. That's what you find in verses 1 and 2. But you're going to find the same thing in verses 3 and 4. It's just going to be stated vastly different. If I could say to you, by way of introduction, what you're going to find in verse 3, 
is a restatement of the doctrine of justification. And what you're going to find in verse 4 is a restatement of the doctrine of sanctification. Because Paul is building an argument to communicate to you that there's no condemnation. Because that is the master theme. I will say in verse 5, he's going to take us off. In, another, in verse 5, what he's going to do is take us off and, and, and spend some time addressing this life in the Spirit. But it's still a subset of this overall thing that he's supposed to, he's trying to communicate. And that is that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, I, I, I might add, you could, in, in one sense, stop right there. And that ought to lead us to a great sense of safety, a great sense of security, a great sense of assurance. Because we now know that there is no condemnation, um, that, that, that there's, a, there's no condemnation against us because God has, number one, put us in Christ and He has put the Holy Spirit uh, in us, that, um, a, a, an imparted righteousness that has set us free from all the claims of the law on us and is also addressing the internal, ever-present corruption that is attached to all of us. That ought to be enough for the, for the people of God to draw the glorious conclusion that we are safe. But as you know, <laughs> um, that doesn't always work. And I want to I mean, that is... Those of you who are seated here tonight who still wrestle with the whole issues of, of assurance... This wasn't enough, was it? It hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough to bring you to the place where you have this enjoyable sense of your own eternal safety and security. And every time you do something that embarrasses your wife, you're thinking again, oh, how could I be? And, and Paul wants you to know that yes, the Christian is still struggling with his sin. But he is not struggling with his sin with condemnation hanging over his head. And the very idea that you are struggling with sin is the evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is alive and, and, and existent within you. And, and I read that wonderful quote from Hal Dane about, you know, if, if your sin is of no concern to you, then these, benefit, these, 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 uh, these promises are not to be appropriated by you. But the recognition that my sin is, a, is in a stench in the nostrils of God, and I, I, I mean, I did it. Yes, I did it. And I, and I you know what, Dad, government, I did it tomorrow and the next day. But the fact that there is this struggle that goes on within our breast over the hatred of our own internal corruption, that, ladies and gentlemen, should be an, an, an opportunity for you to come to the conclusion that Paul wants you to come to. But there's no condemnation for you. It will never await you. 
do you, do you slip back into your old ways from time to time? Yeah, shame on you. Just like the rest of us. And uh, did you embarrass your wife this past week? Yeah. You know, did you do something this weekend that was just hard? I, and, and guys, I certainly don't want to ever be heard as encouraging that. But I'm saying that the Christian is still struggling with that internal corruption. But he is not doing, he is not engaged in that struggle with the Damocletian sword hanging over his head. You know what that, that, that piece of mythology is all about, the Damocletian sword? You know about that thing? Did I have that right? Is that right, Damocletian? Somebody who's a, who's, it's the, it's the king that sat right under the sword. And, you know, if he does anything wrong, it's going to drum and impale him. You don't live like that, ladies and gentlemen. This is what Paul wants you to hear. And then he gives you the argument. He gives it to you in verses 1 and 2. And then he turns around and gives it to you again in verses 3 and 4. Now, see, here's what's going to happen, though. It's 725. We've got 20 minutes. And what we have to do is try to cover verse 3, which we can't. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go as far as I can go in verse 3, and then we're going to come back next week, and everybody's going to forget what loudmouth said about verse 3. And so what I have to do is this all over again <laughs> and, and remind you, and I'm, I'm not complaining, guys. I'm just saying that's the fault of the system. It's not your, well, it's part of your fault, but the, the, our system is flawed. Because what we ought to do is just kind of pill out and, you know, and go through the whole thing in one big... I know that nobody would be into that, but nor would I. But that's part of our problem. That's why it's confusing. Because we're going to jump into this verse, which really, ladies and gentlemen, is... is I mean, I'm, I'm a gifted overstater, but um, I don't know... Everything that the gospel says is crammed into verse 3. So I, I've got 20 minutes to tell you everything that's crammed in there. And I can't do it. And I won't try to do it. But next week, you're going to forget what I did this week. And then we're going to be confused again. Okay? So we are bonding together to exist in a perpetual state of confusion. <laughs> How about that? Um, so look with me at verse 3 now. Again, understanding that this is a couplet. You've got verses 1 and 2 is a couplet that have basically stated justification and sanctification. You're going to get the same thing in verses 3 and 4. He says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, guys... Um, by the way, that's just half of that, that sentence. Verses 3 and 4. Maybe I should read verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, that's one sentence. That's one sentence. Verses 3 and 4 is one sentence. And, and, and you know enough, you've been around the Christian church to know, long enough to realize how much is crammed into those two little verses. Um, so, well, let's kind of pick at it the best we can. Um, guys, again, I say to you, in verses 3 and 4, Paul is giving us a further explanation of what he's been saying in verses 1 and 2. 
um, he is building on that argument or expanding the argument in, in different words. And um, that's all that you find. But you find some pretty poignant stuff being stated in there. You and I have been set free from the law, as we were told in verse 2. But why was that necessary? Why was it necessary that I be set free from the law? What he does in verses 3 and 4 is that he gives us reasons as to why it was necessary for me to be set free from the law. And then he tells us how that happened. And then he points to the result, which is really what you find in verse 4. So he tells us why we had to be set free from the law. And then he tells us how that took place, how God pulled that off. All right, that's really crammed into verse 3. And then in verse 4, you find the result of God having done that. Now, Paul starts by telling us what, what the law could not do. For instance, for what the law could not do. Why did I have to be set free from the law? Why was it necessary for me to be set free from that? Because there was things that the law simply could not do. The law could not justify me. Because of weakness. Not in the law. Notice what it says. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. It's not the law that Paul is criticizing. The law was couldn't do things because it was there was a weakness in our flesh but the law could never justify um the the flesh always disables and that's what the flesh has done to the law guys um the the law condemns sin it it, it points to a right way to live yes it can do that but it cannot produce results the law is powerless to produce righteousness. It cannot make you good. It, it, it can demand, but it can enable. You know, um, uh, trying to give you a word that we all know, it can nag, but it can't produce results. You know, ladies, that your nagging never produces any results. And maybe we or men are the ones that are guilty, but... That's what the law can do. It can nag, but the nagging never helps. That's what the law can do, but it cannot justify. It cannot affect our eternal condition, but it can nag the daylights out of you. And because it cannot justify, because it cannot enable, because it cannot empower, because it cannot produce effects of life, I had to be set free from that. You know, guys, so let me back up. Slow down with me. It is, it's not enough for me to be delivered from, from guilt and punishment, which is what justification did. I must, I must have a positive righteousness about me. Verse 3 tells us that what, what God has done to rid me of guilt and punishment... Verse 4 is going to tell me what God has done to produce that positive righteousness. The same thing that you find here. Let me, let me give you an illustration, or, or at least a to. 
Guys, I've, I've, I've said this before. I use it in my systematics class. But if I am a drug user and a drug dealer, I don't have one problem. I have two problems. I have a, I'm a drug dealer and therefore I'm in trouble with the law. I must be set free from guilt and punishment. So I need an imputed righteousness to satisfy the clamorings of law against me. I got that in justification. I got that in Christ. But I also got a habit. I got a drug habit. And if all you do is satisfy the law for me, I really appreciate that. But it's going to be a matter of hours before I have not violated that law again. Because i got a drug habit. And so not only do you have to address my violations of the law, you have to address my, um, uh, my habits. Guys, I need a positive righteousness. Um, verse 3 tells me, verse 3 tells me what God did to address my guilt and punishment. Just like verse 1. But verse 4 tells me what God did to address or to produce a positive righteousness in me. There is a righteousness of Christ that is imputed to me in justification and a righteousness of Christ that's imparted to me via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The law could not deliver me from guilt and punishment. It pronounces a, a, a judgment on me, but it couldn't deliver me from it. Nor could it give me any kind of positive life of righteousness. So because of what the law could not do, and this, ladies and gentlemen, if you're still awake, take your little pins and underline this. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. <laughs> Gang, that is, that is marvelous beyond belief. What the law could not do, grace achieves. What the law could not do, God initiates. But, but, but why couldn't the law, uh, why, why could it not do that? Well, because it was weak through the flesh, the text says. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Again, I say, he does not say that the law was weak. The law failed because it had to work through our flesh. And our flesh, ladies and gentlemen, has been fallen since the Garden of Eden. Now, keep going in the text. How has God done for us what the law could not do for us? In view of the impotency of the law, what has God done? And here in this text, ladies and gentlemen, you find the very summary of every piece of good news that the, that the Bible has. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. How? 
by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. <clears throat> you know, f- first of all, folks, l- let me show you just a couple of quick things. Um, what the law could not do, God did. Notice, first of all, God did. That is a reference to God the Father. There is the term, I've told you this before, the term God can be used in a couple of ways. It can be used to refer to the first person of the Trinity, or it can be used to refer to all three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead. But here, we have God the Father in view, and it is said that God the Father um, uh, has done something. Uh, God did... He is, um, that, that is, he has produced a salvation that is the result of some action that he took. Ladies and gentlemen, that's critically important. Salvation is the result of an action that God took. Not you. Ladies and gentlemen, it is his plan. Man is completely helpless in this plan. And because that is true, because it is God who has done it, Paul can say there is no condemnation. Ladies and gentlemen, if if there was something left up to me, if there was something left in my hands... Paul would never be able to say what he said in 8.1. Because somehow I would find some way to mess it up. But you notice, the law couldn't produce this. It couldn't achieve that. So what the law couldn't do, and because of my weakness of flesh, I couldn't do it either. God did. You know, in, 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 a, in a very real sense, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is summarized in those two words. God did. Um, salvation. God did. Uh, and what did he do? He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Folks, um, just before I go to that real quickly, I want you to notice that there is a mention of God the Father by sending his own son, God the Son, and then the verse right above that in verse 2, there's a mention of God the Spirit. You know, the cults would suggest to you that, that uh, the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. Well, there it is in two verses. It is not labeled the Trinity, but there is a mention of all three persons of the Godhead in, in those two brief verses. But we're, we're told that God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Salvation, ladies and gentlemen, is in and through the Lord Jesus. There is no knowledge of God apart from Christ. There is no relationship with God apart from Christ. What God has done to remedy the condition of sinful man, He has done it through His Son, no else. There is no knowledge of God. There is no relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. You know, guys... Uh, in my grace group last month, we, um, oh, John Bunyan had said something about, and I, 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 know it, I know what he said, but it's not important for this context, but 
What we did in our grace group last month is we spent pretty much the entire grace group talking about John 14, 6, which you all know, (laughs) where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And, And all I did was step back and say to my grace group, What is your visceral reaction to that statement? What does that do to you when you hear that thing? Because there is no harder truth in the entirety of the Scripture. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Oh, but wait a minute. Isn't there some loophole? Isn't there some alternate route? What about my friends who are so moral? And they're Mormons. They're so, they're such fine people. And what about, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, what God has done, what He did, He did it through His Son. Everything that He's done, He did it through Him. He's done it through Jesus. That's all He's done. He ain't done anything else but what He's done through Christ. There's nothing else He's done. What He did... He did through Jesus. There is no relationship with God. There is no knowledge of God apart from Christ. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, there's no harder truth in the Bible than that one. I'm telling you that the non-Christian world is, is really down on Christianity, but not because of the Ten Commandments. It's really down on Christianity, but not because we, we say, you, uh, you know, you... Homosexuality is a sin. They're down on Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, because of John 14, 6. Because not only do we claim to, claim to have a route to heaven, we claim to have not only the route, but the only route. That's why they're down on us, ladies and gentlemen. Now, apart from what God did by sending His Son, He has done nothing. But that's a whole whale of a lot. In view of the impotency of the law and the weakness of flesh, God sent His Son. We'll stop there. Our Father, I do pray for clarity of thought and clarity of communication and I pray that your people will discover the great beauties of your word and and though they are somewhat unfortunate in that they are uh, at least in this context confined to a very feeble uh, handler of this book might my uh, stammering tongue not prevent them from seeing the great beauties of the simple words What the law could not do, God did. We celebrate, O God, the the certainty of what you have done. And because of, of what you have achieved by grace, because of what you have initiated by grace, The Apostle Paul tells to struggling people like us, I know the struggle. Indeed, it is an ugly thing. But the struggle goes on 
without the fear of condemnation. Might those two words find their way into the base of every soul here. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.